every leader needs a dose of diplomacy, and who better to learn from than an ambassador. On this episode, Susan Rice, former U.S. Ambassador to the United Nations and National Security Advisor, with a bit of inspiration to be more diplomatic. This is Coaching for Leaders, episode 456. Produced by Innovate Learning, maximizing human potential. Greetings to you from Orange County, California. This is Coaching for Leaders, and I'm your host, Dave Stahoviak. Leaders aren't born, they're made. And this weekly show helps you discover leadership wisdom through insightful conversations. Merriam-Webster's dictionary defines diplomacy as the skill in handling affairs without arousing hostility. No doubt that today's guest is an expert in diplomacy. I'm so glad to welcome to the show today, Susan Rice. Susan served as the United States Ambassador to the United Nations during President Barack Obama's first term in office. She was later appointed by President Obama as National Security Advisor, a position she held until the end of his presidency. Today, she is the Distinguished Visiting Research Fellow at the School of International Service at American University, a non-resident senior fellow at the Belfar Center for Science and International Affairs at Harvard's Kennedy School of Government, and a contributing opinion writer for The New York Times. She is the author of the New York Times bestseller, Tough Love, My Story of Things Worth Fighting For. Madam Ambassador, so glad to welcome you to Coaching for Leaders. Thanks so much, Dave. It's great to be with you. Your experience with diplomacy started at seven years old. You (laughs) grew up in a household where both of your parents clearly loved you and your brother. But as you say, they had no business being married. And there (laughs) there was an intense fighting that lasted for years. And and you write that as a young child, you intervened a lot. What did you do to intervene? Well, as you mentioned, starting at about the time I was seven, I would hear them fighting quite loudly and sometimes violently when I was trying to sleep at night. I had a younger brother who was two years younger than me. I still do, thankfully. And uh, if I heard the fighting sound like it was getting kind of scary and out of control, I would sneak downstairs and spy on them, see what was going on. And if it did seem like it was going in a scary direction, I would step in. Sometimes that meant, you know, trying to talk them down and reason with both of them. And sometimes it meant, you know, trying to separate them. But I felt like if I didn't do it, it wasn't going to happen. And I wanted to ensure that for me and my brother, you know, things were as safe as they could be. And I write a lot in the book about my parents who are both really wonderful, accomplished professionals who taught me a huge amount and themselves came from you know, very modest backgrounds and rose to do great things, both of them. But in the realm of their marriage, it was not a happy pairing. And I had to learn to mediate to a large extent. I'm not sure I'd call that diplomacy because sometimes to separate them and to try to defuse the situation, it wasn't always diplomatic, but it was mediation. And inadvertently, I think in retrospect, I I learned some experiences with conflict and with parties that are perhaps intractably opposed and trying to resolve differences that served me later in my life and in my career in ways that I couldn't have anticipated as a child. Yeah, indeed. What did you learn from those early moments that, as you reflect on your career in diplomacy, that you still pull from? 
Well, I think I learned from an early age, in large part from my parents fighting, but also from being in a family where debate on issues and on the news of the day and between and among, you know, my dad and my uncles or over the dinner table when it was me and my brother and my mom and dad, that, you know, a robust debate and a robust argument is fine when it goes and veers into, you know, the scary or the violent, as it did sometimes between my parents, obviously. That's not fine. But what I think I developed in addition to some experience with mediation was a lack of discomfort, as some people are, with conflict, with disagreement, with argument. I'm not scared to express my own opinion, to do it with confidence. I'm not scared to disagree or dissent. And I think that did help me to be willing to stand up, to not be conflict averse, not to provoke a conflict by any means. But if there is a robust debate to be engaged, it's, it's not something I've ever shied from. The other thing I think I learned from that early experience with my parents is a measure of resilience. In those early years between seven and eight, when I first started being drawn into their conflicts through the time that I was roughly 15, when they'd long since broken up, but then had a very public, very ugly and antagonistic custody battle over me and my brother. Those were really challenging years for me, socially, emotionally, academically. And so I had to figure out how in the context of a broken home and a lot of unpleasantness, I could still find my footing as a student, find my footing as a leader, repair my friendships, which I think I had, you know, around fifth and sixth grade done a good bit of damage to just because I was so angry and bringing that anger to places where it wasn't expected or appropriate. So I had to learn how to be my best when things were harder than they might otherwise have been. And I realized along the way that I could take a punch in the form of what was going on in my family life and keep running and sustain that punch and be okay, ultimately. And so I gained, a, ironically through that, a degree of confidence in my own strength and resiliency that I also think helped me as a senior official down the road when... <laughs> the knives or the bullets might have been flying. And I was able to, I think, draw on that reservoir of experience and belief in my own ability to persevere that proved helpful. Mm, Indeed. You were an assistant secretary of state back in the Clinton administration and former Congressman Howard Volpe, you had a deep respect for, took you to lunch one day early in your tenure and had some pretty direct words. You write in the book that he said, you are too hard-charging and hard-headed. Rather than listen well, he said, you are overly directive and intimidate others so much that you quell dissent and stifle contrary advice. He allowed that I was smart, but too brash, knowledgeable, but immature. He warned me bluntly that I would fail as an assistant secretary if I did not correct course. And you, you say later that you came to largely agree with his assessment. And I'm so curious, what did you, <laughs> what did you do to shift from that? Well, the context for this was I was at age 32 named an assistant secretary of state for African affairs. I think I'm still the youngest person ever to have been named a regional assistant secretary of state. And I came from four plus years of working in the White House, including closely with the president and the national security advisor. And I knew the substance of my brief very well. 
but I was young and I had never led a team the size of the one that I was leading. And virtually all of the senior people, all of the ambassadors that reported to me and many others were 20 to 30 years my senior, most of them career foreign service officers, mostly white men. And I was very young, an African-American woman in an environment where in any event, there were very few women or minorities. And I had just had a brand new baby three months earlier. And so I was a breastfeeding mother in a small C conservative culture where none of what I represented was particularly familiar. And so I came in very determined as many political appointees are that, you know, we have a finite amount of time. We have an agenda we want to get through. I had the support of the secretary of state at the time who was Madeleine Albright and president Clinton, the national security advisor. And we knew what we wanted to do and I wanted to get it done. (laughs) And about six months into my tenure in 1998, a series of crises hit war broke out in East Africa War broke out in the Congo involving six other countries in what was known as Africa's First World War, Angola, Sudan, Liberia, all these things sort of came to crisis simultaneously. And then in August of 1998, Al-Qaeda attacked our embassies in Kenya and Tanzania, killing 12 Americans and over 200 Kenyans and Tanzanians. And so it was a horrific loss and a huge emotional and policy blow for all of us who were working on Africa at the time, and we had lost our colleagues. And so against this backdrop of the pressure of the terrorist attack, the fact that we were constantly receiving a stream of credible threats against other of our African embassies that we had to take very seriously. It was a very stressful time. My approach to dealing with it was rather than sort of wallow in emotion and address the pain that we were all feeling head on. My approach to it as a young and relatively inexperienced leader was just to charge through it to kind of as I did with my parents' divorce, quite frankly. You know, we have a crisis. We got to keep our heads down. We got to do the work. We can't allow ourselves to be distracted emotionally or otherwise. And it wasn't a leadership style that was going to work in that context. And thankfully, Howard Wolpe, who was a wonderful man, was kind enough to take me out to lunch and give me that tough love and help me to understand what am I good at, where am I falling short, and to recognize that this was a moment of reckoning. I either was going to figure it out and get it right, or I was going to fail. And it was a pivotal moment for me because I then reflected over his advice over the Christmas holiday and came back and realized that he was right, that I had to be more patient. I had to be more respectful and solicitous of other people's views and experience and and perspective. I had to lead a team, not, you know, leadership is not a solo sport. It's a team sport. It's not being a virtuoso musician. It's conducting an orchestra. And he was good enough to give me that insight, you know, without varnish. And I think I was thankfully, confident enough and mature enough to realize that he was giving me badly needed advice and that it was coming from the vantage point, often as my parents had done to me as I grew up, from a person who had my best interests at heart. And I was able to take his advice on board without reacting overly defensively or what have you. And so it was a huge 
gift to me that enabled me to turn the corner and to be a much more effective leader, even at that early age. So that, you know, by the time four years had finished and it was the end of the Clinton administration, I had by many measures been a successful and effective assistant secretary, despite my age and relative inexperience compared to to many of the people that I was working with. I know there are people listening who have had someone like a Howard sit down and give them that tough love. And they've then walked out of that situation and wondered, well, gosh, what do I do? Do you recall what you did first to start to turn the corner and to shift? I think I became a little more humble, a little more patient, and a little more willing to acknowledge that no one of us, least of all myself, had all the answers. So I tried to bring people into decision-making more effectively, to hear them out, to give credence to their perspectives, even if their recommendations were not ones that I ultimately accepted. I mean, and this is something I learned and utilized throughout my later career. You know, you can get a long way leading a team, even if many members of the team don't actually agree with the direction you're steering towards. If they feel that their advice, perspective, recommendations have truly been heard and appreciated. And so that experience and that insight served me well later in the Obama administration as UN ambassador, but especially as national security advisor, where the role is really to ensure that all voices at a senior level are heard and fairly reflected in terms of the recommendations being provided to the president. At the end of the day, it's his choice to make. The National Security Advisor gets to make sort of the ultimate recommendation to the president, but only after, if the job is being done properly, fairly and fully reflecting the perspectives of each of the other key officials, the Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, etc. And so I learned early on that to keep a team coherent and cohesive doesn't necessarily require catering to everybody's individual viewpoint, but it does require making sure that they know and believe that they were heard and their views were considered carefully and respected. I'm so curious about that because, as you say, the position of National Security Advisor is very different than you, an ambassador, in that you're chairing the National Security Council meetings. And these are powerful voices, (laughs) the Vice President of the United States, Secretary of Defense, Secretary of State. I'm so curious, like for, for almost all of us who have never had the window into what a meeting like what that would sound like, how do you as a chair of a meeting where those strong voices are all there, what do you do to ensure that everyone really is genuinely heard, even if you may personally hold a very different view? <laughs> well, it's a skill that you have to develop. And First of all, it's not just what happens when you sit around the table in the White House Situation Room. It's what preparation goes into setting up the discussion, the quality of the paper that's produced that lays out the issues and the options. It's the coherence of the agenda and whether you're actually able to drive the conversation in a coherent and linear direction. And you're right. I mean, it's often very large personalities with very healthy egos and strong opinions. And not all of them are necessarily in every instance arguing a linear case or a succinct case or 
or even sometimes a coherent case. And sometimes they come very, very well prepared. And sometimes if, you know, they're traveling overseas and they're trying to join a meeting on the fly, they may not be as well prepared as they otherwise might. And so managing the meeting is really, in many ways, the hardest part and making sure that all the issues are aired, that all the options are given fair and due consideration. And then, you know, it's about making sure that everybody gets a chance to express their judgment. When there's consensus, it's not that difficult. And to some extent, it was not uncommon to have that consensus. In that case, it was often the president who would question and express doubt about the consensus and pressure test it. But what was more of a challenge for me is the chair of the National Security Principles Committee, the cabinet level decision-making body, was when there was real dissent and disagreement and making sure that the arguments were, were made clearly and coherently and hopefully without vitriol or ad hominem attacks and were clearly enough stated so that when the National Security Council staff and I ultimately had to write this up and give our best recommendations to the president, that I was able to faithfully and without any spin on the ball capture the viewpoints and the recommendations of each of my colleagues around the table. And you know, sometimes, depending on the issue, the president would say, you know, this is a topic I want to sit down with the principals on in person and hear from them and hear from the experts around the room and ruminate a bit before I make a final decision. But more often than not, the decisions came out of the meetings that I chaired and that were reflected in the decision memos that were sent to the president. So the challenge was always making sure that all the perspectives were elicited and fairly reflected and that the principals had confidence that I was putting forward their views faithfully and without that spin on the ball. I hear you saying two really key things. One is preparation and then one is facilitation. And I know we have people within our listening audience who are in a role not unlike this, certainly different in visibility, but where they are amongst their executive team facilitating very difficult situations, facilitating difficult situations with customers and boards. On the preparation piece, I can only imagine the amount of work that your staff and the staffs of all the different agencies would do for a meeting like that. What's one or two things that you learned in this experience to be sure that absolutely were done in advance of the meeting that made that go better? Well, I was personally really a stickler for ensuring that the papers that we sent around to the agencies in preparation for these meetings were structured in a way that we were prepared to make thoughtful and coherent decisions. Some of these issues, as you can imagine, are so complicated and we come back to them again and again because they don't go away. And whether it's Syria or Afghanistan or you name it. And sometimes the battle rhythm, the pace of the meetings and the number of times that the staff need to prepare these options papers in a given week and that I have to then read and carefully review them and restructure them if necessary can be overwhelming. And so the making sure that the papers guide the discussion and guide the thinking of the participants is important. And then also, frankly, and this was something that as I write the book, we did not always succeed at getting the memos out and around to the agencies and thus to the other principals with adequate preparation time. 
you know, all of those people, what secretaries of defense, the chairman of the joint chiefs, secretary of state, they all have like the national security advisor, really busy jobs. And I found when I, before I was national security advisor, when I was UN ambassador and I was equally overscheduled, that the only way I could ensure that I was really ready for the meetings that I was participating in as one of the principals at the cabinet table was to block a couple of hours before each of these meetings to make sure, knowing that paper was going to probably come late, that I had time to read it and to really digest it. And so timeliness of the product matters, but also the principals themselves have to prioritize preparation. This is always something of a point of tension. In my judgment, long before I was national security advisor, but especially after I became national security advisor, my view was that our most important responsibility as members of the president's national security cabinet was to ensure that he was optimally prepared to make the wisest and toughest decisions. And that meant spending time in that situation room around the principal's committee table and making the most of that time. And yet it was always a challenge because if you're the secretary of state, you're flying around the world, you're engaging with foreign leaders, you're hosting foreign counterparts, same for the secretary of defense. They all have, you know, they're running big bureaucracies and major enterprises of their own. And so ensuring that they too prioritize the, the preparation that goes into these things is, is also a challenge. How did you do that? Did you find something that was helpful to help them to make that space? Well, some did it more readily than others, quite honestly. And some would try to say, well, I'm traveling, so I'm not going to participate. In the, and of course, they have the capacity to come in by a secure video teleconference, whether they're in a foreign capital or on an airplane, frankly. You know, we have that quality of technology. And because I took the view that these decisions that we were presenting to the president were, were really ultimately our most important responsibility. You know, if they weren't prepared or weren't prepared to, to make the time, I was not cutting them any slack. I mean, they could not send, you know, a third ranking official. They might be able to send their deputy, but their deputy had to be empowered to speak for them. They didn't get another bite at the apple and say, well, I didn't agree with my deputy, so here's my view. <laughs> the deputy's coming he or she is representing the secretary's view and that of the agency. And by being really insistent on that, if not unforgiving, I think, you know, sooner rather than later, people understood that if they wanted to have their voices reflected, then they needed to make the time to prioritize the participation and preparation. I'm curious too about the facilitation piece when someone like a, a secretary would show up for a meeting and quite rightfully, been busy traveling around the world, dead tired, multiple time zones, and they're trying to articulate their view, which needs to be represented in a meeting like that, and they're incoherent. <laughs> and, <laughs> and and you're maybe on the other side, and yet it's your job to make sure that that view's represented. It, you know, it depended, honestly. You know, sometimes it was to be very Socratic and very patient in trying to elicit their views. Sometimes it was to be a little short and to indicate that they weren't, in my estimation, bringing their best game and that, you know, this is not the place for that. And a lot of other times I try to use humor. So, you know, it's a combination of tools that can be useful in different circumstances. And, you know, I, I don't want to suggest that I played every discussion or every meeting perfectly. They were ones that went way too long and others that just went off the rails because <laughs> either somebody took them off the rails or, 
you know, it wasn't well run by me or, or whatever. But for the most part, I think, you know, we had a crush of issues to deal with, particularly in my first two or three years. And we were working at an extremely intensive pace. And yet I think, you know, we managed, and this is something I'm proud of, not only to wrestle with the unforeseen crises that hit our inbox, whether that was Edward Snowden or Syrian chemical weapons or a coup in Egypt or, you know, Russia invading Ukraine or the rise of ISIS. We had to deal with all of the Ebola epidemic. All these things came, you know, at us and we had to deal with them to the greatest extent possible effectively. And at the same time, we had a a series of affirmative objectives that we were also trying to achieve, you know, for example, the Paris Climate Agreement, the Trans-Pacific Partnership Agreement, the Iran nuclear deal, the opening to Cuba, many of our development initiatives around the world, the global health security agenda. These were things that we could have said, you know what, we don't care about them. We're not going to pursue them. Or alternatively, these are important. And despite all of the other things that we have to deal with that we may not have hoped for, planned on, or scheduled, we got to figure out how to walk and chew gum at the same time. And that was something that we also managed to do, I think, quite effectively. It meant a lot of effort and a lot of meetings. It meant, you know, delegating a fair bit. And if we were spending most of our time on the crises, making sure that the people who were working on the affirmative opportunities had the guidance and support that they needed and the attention that they had to have when they needed it. But we had to trust them to, to know when to ask for backup. I hear this theme, as I reflect on what you just said throughout your book and your, some of your public appearances, of being willing to have and skilled at using a lot of different tools so when the situation calls for it, that there's a time for humor, that that will work well. There's a time for the Iron Fist. There's a time for the Velvet Hammer, maybe. There's a time for expectation setting. And what really is where experience probably comes in a bit, I would guess, is being able to use the right tool in the right situation and have that skill practiced and ready. Right. And, you know, it's something you get better at with time and experience. You can't be all hammer. You can't be all humor. There's a time and a place, as you said, for each. And the other thing that is critical is that even if people sitting around that table don't always like each other, although in our case, mostly we did. They have to trust each other, trust each other to be shooting straight and you know, not out to stab a fellow colleague in the back publicly. That what's said in the room, for the most part, stays in the room. And that where there are vigorous disagreements, they're credible and honest disagreements that come from a place of respect and trust to the greatest extent, even if not warmth and affinity. One of the mistakes uh, I think leaders make when they realize that perhaps they were not as diplomatic as they wanted to be or maybe wanted to handle something differently is they conclude that, well, that person should be able to handle it. And I'm not a fan of that logic, but for those who might be, you've talked really publicly about the political firestorm that engulfed you after the Benghazi attack. And specifically, you share what happened with your daughter, Maris. I was wondering if you could tell that story for us. Yeah. Well, I described the, the, the larger experience around Benghazi and what I learned from it and what consequences it had in a sort of standalone chapter 
on that topic. But I also share early in the book that my daughter, who was nine at the time, about six or seven weeks after I'd gone on the Sunday shows and you know I'd become a fixture on cable news constantly on most every channel, started to complain to me and her dad that she was seeing images of men come at her out of walls. And that could happen in her third grade classroom or it could happen at home or when she was visiting a friend. And it was terrifying for her. And we realized that she was having what only could be considered hallucinations. And of course, we were completely freaked out and took her to Children's Hospital in Washington for what ended up being about two weeks of testing. And they were concerned most about the possibility that she might have a brain tumor or some kind of schizophrenia or psychosis or maybe a vision problem. And but they, after these battery of tests, they thankfully ruled out all the worst case scenarios and had her evaluated further and concluded largely through a process of elimination that she was in all likelihood experiencing a stress reaction to what was happening to me. And my husband and I realized belatedly that for many of these weeks, the television had been on in the background and and what we were able to tune out, she was unable at her age to process or absorb. And all she knew was that her mom was being attacked. And long story short is that thankfully, after some months, almost a year, the hallucinations became less frequent and they went away. She's now 17 and a highly happy, healthy, successful, thriving young woman. And so the good news is, thankfully, there was no lasting damage. But I included that very personal story with her permission because One thing that I think so many Americans don't understand when they may be watching television is that this politics of personal destruction that's become so common in Washington and frankly gotten much worse since this happened in 2012 around Benghazi, the politics of personal destruction does not come without a cost. It doesn't come for free for a lot of people who didn't sign up for any kind of public service you know, for kids, for parents, for people who love the person who may be the target. And this is true regardless of your partisan affiliation. This is true regardless of whether you did anything right or wrong. And so I shared that because I think, you know, it becomes in the minds of many, particularly if not especially in Washington, something of a blood sport. And it should not be viewed in that way. It's not a joke for a lot of people who experience the side effects or consequences. Thank you so much, Tamaris, for allowing you to share her story in the book. I'm so glad she did because one of the passions I have for helping develop leaders is that we see the ripple effects that we have, not only inside our organizations, but in people's families and customers and colleagues. Sometimes we may say something or fire that one email off to one person, but it does have a ripple effect. And what an important reminder her story is on the humility you talked about earlier and us being able to lead with that in almost every situation. Well, uh, thank you for saying that. She's, she's a great kid. And, you know, both my kids, this is a very personal book in many ways. And I talk a lot about my 
family, my upbringing, my family history, my kids, my husband, my all that stuff. And they have all been extremely generous, along with my brother and others, in letting me share our collective story. And I hope there are ways in which, by doing so, it's of value to other people. That was a large part of my motivation for doing it. It's one of the reasons I love the book so much, because it's not just a professional book, and it's not just a personal book. It is you, the whole person, and your family and friends around you, and how they have shaped you. So much of our skill as leaders and the things we struggle with are shaped by our experiences around us. I just have one last question for you. You know, Leaders, of course, are always learning, always changing, always growing, as you have throughout your career. I'm curious, since leaving your position as National Security Advisor, what have you changed your mind on? Well, you know, I could give you a handful of policy issues that I've changed my mind on. But I think one of the key things I changed my mind on, and the reason we're talking today, is that if you'd asked me in 2014 or 15, would you ever write a book, particularly one about yourself, I would have said maybe, but not for another 15 or 20 years, not anytime soon. But I decided to write this book and write it now in a very personal way as well as a professional way, when I really started reflecting on the experience that I'd had in the aftermath of Benghazi, where, first of all, I'd learned some things about myself and about how the media works and Washington works that I thought were useful lessons to share. But I also realized that as long as I had been serving in government, particularly in the years after Benghazi, so from 2012 to early 2017, my job was to speak for the United States of America and for the President of the United States. It was not to have my own voice or express my own views in a personal capacity. And yet, after Benghazi, I had become far more famous or infamous than I ever had anticipated or hoped for. And I was the subject of characterizations and mischaracterizations. And I was a villain or a victim or a heroine or a liar, whatever it was, depending on what cable channel you listened to or what newspaper you read. And none of those characterizations or images of me, positive or negative, bore any relationship to who I am and where I've come from and what motivates me. And one of the critical lessons I learned from my parents, particularly my dad, who really came up from a very difficult childhood in segregated South Carolina in the 1920s, served in World War II with the the Tuskegee Airmen, and then became a PhD economist and ultimately a governor of the Federal Reserve Board, but not before being kept out of so many professional opportunities in the 50s and 60s because he was African-American, was that you can't let other people define you for you. That was a critical lesson from him. You have to define yourself, believe in yourself, speak for yourself. And so it was only after I I had gotten the freedom of being outside of government and a bit of perspective that I realized that I wanted to use my own voice. I wanted to tell my own story in my own words and not allow these caricatures of me define me. Susan Rice is the author of Tough Love, my story of things worth fighting for. Madam Ambassador, thank you for your time. Thank you so much, Dave. It's great to talk to you. Hey, 
If this conversation was useful to you, four other episodes you may also want to consider. One of them is episode 290, How to Manage Abrasive Leaders with Sharon Bar-David. Susan and I talked a bit about abrasiveness in this conversation, and sometimes the tables are turned, though, in that you are managing the person who is the abrasive leader. How do you handle that situation well with diplomacy, but also with directness? In episode 290, we talked in detail about how to do that three key steps that Sharon identifies and invites leaders to utilize if you find yourself in that position, a good starting point for you if that is the case. I'd also invite you to consider episode 344, The Way to Have Conversations That Matter with NPR host Celeste Headley. She has had tremendous experience in interviewing people all over the world and in developing a skill set of how to have a great conversation. She has a TED Talk that's gone viral on that topic. And in episode 344, we talked about some of the key principles on how to have conversations that matter, which of course is a key art of diplomacy. So much there that you can utilize in becoming more diplomatic. I'd also recommend along with that episode 416, how to negotiate when others have power with Kwame Christian. Of course, that is a situation that almost all of us find ourselves in, at least occasionally, is having that negotiation when someone else or the other organization has a lot more power than we do. How do you approach that? What can you do tactically? Yes, there is a bunch you can do. Episode 416 will walk you through the steps on exactly how to go down that path. And then finally, for another perspective of leadership at the highest levels of government, I'd invite you to consider my interview with General James Mattis on episode 440, also recently Secretary of Defense of the United States. In that conversation, we talked about leadership in the midst of chaos and many of the situations he has dealt with over the years in military and government leadership. Again, episode 440 for that. All of those episodes are cataloged on the coachingforleaders.com website. And in particular, this conversation today with Susan Rice filed under difficult situations and how to handle those well, as well as facilitating meetings, a skill so many of us need. If you also would like to be able to track down as much as possible on the website, just set up your free membership at coachingforleaders.com. It's going to give you access to the entire library since 2011, searchable by topic, all of the free audio courses available, my book notes as I've collected for Susan's book as well, and some of my notes and highlights that I found really inspiring and influenced some of my thinking on the questions I ask for Susan's book, but also all of the interviews in the last few years are available inside the free membership. Plus, you'll get access to my weekly leadership guide that comes out every Wednesday with the notes from this episode, every episode, and of course, all the resources I've tracked down during the week that'll be useful to you. All of that at coachingforleaders.com. Just set up your free membership and you'll be off and running. And we do tackle questions from you, our audience, once a month. That is next week. Bonnie will be back on the show to respond to questions. If you have one you'd like us to consider, coachingforleaders.com slash feedback is where to go. See you back next Monday with Bonnie. Have a wonderful week. Take care.